So last week we began this series on the book of Judges, and I started with an overview covering the key themes that make up the whole book. And uh, from here forward, we'll be journeying through the whole book passage by passage, and today I'm going to begin by covering chapter 1 all the way to chapter 2, verses 5. So we're going to go through each verse and um, look into that passage. So if you have your Bibles, I'd say keep them out as we're probably going to be in them most of the time. Um, But let's begin by jumping right into Judges chapter 1, verses 1, all the way through 2, verse 5. So starting with Judges chapter 1. I'm not going to put it up here, it's it's really long, but if you have your Bible, just follow through. And I'm going to go ahead and read it. Judges 1, verse 1. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, likewise, will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their land, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negeb, And in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arabah. And they defeated Sheshiah or Sheshiah and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. The name Deber was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him. Asha, my daughter for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's young brother, captured it. And he gave him Asha, his daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of Negeb, Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon and his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Horam. Judah also captured Gaza, 
with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, and Moses said, And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is the name till this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or, the, or of Allah or of Ichib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth, Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Eris, in Ajalon, and in Shalbi. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of, of the place Bacham. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. <coughs> Amen. 
So in that passage, I'm going to divide it in three themes. Okay, we're going to, we're going to go through it all, but I'm going to divide it in three points. And the three points you'll see on your worksheet, point number one, is the conquest. Okay, this is Israel's mission in taking over the land. Point number two, I'm going to talk about Israel's disobedience. Uh, this is the disobedience against God's instruction. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And then point number three on the bottom is future apostasy, which is the effects of their disobedience leading to their own destruction. But starting with the first point, the conquest. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we read the whole passage, but the book begins in a very similar way that many of the Old Testament books begin. You'll see in verse 1, look at verse 1, that it begins by saying, after the death of Joshua... Now, interestingly, if you were to go back, you don't have to, but if you were to go back to Exodus, similarly, it begins with the words, after the death of Joseph. Interestingly, if you were to go back to the book of Exodus, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, if you were to go back to the, the book of Exodus, it's the death of Joseph. If you go back to the book of Joshua, uh, right before the book of Judges, uh, it begins with the death of Moses. And also, if you go forward in First in Kings, it begins by talking about the death of David. So you see, in each of these books, it begins with the death of somebody. So what we see here is that after the death of each servant of God, it seems to mark the beginning of a new era. God raises significant servants to fulfill their role in the purposes of God in history. But the bigger point that we should acknowledge is that after all the things that has happened in each of these eras, when you go back into the other books, God raises up a leader, stuff happens. You go to the next book, that person, that leader dies, and there's, a, there's, a, there's another collection of things that happen. After these things, whether good or bad, you'll notice that the connection throughout all the books is that God's kingdom never collapses. It never finishes. It continues on. Even through the failures and the, the good times, God's kingdom continues to go on forth. Now, this ought to speak to us, right, on the reality that we are but a vapor that appears uh, for a little while and then vanishes away, like it says in James 4, 14. God raises up these leaders. Next minute, they're gone. God fulfills his purposes in each one of these leaders, and that's it. You forget about them. You move on to the next guy. Um, <clears throat> The book of Judges testify that everything that we do is under the sovereign control of God. And all these acts that these leaders do, it's not insignificant even though their time is short. It, it, it contributes to the big picture that God is creating. And of course God is in control and he's using all these men to paint the bigger picture. But what verse 1 ought to remind us is that all of us, especially the great judges of the nation of Israel throughout history, were called and commissioned to live their lives for the task of God. This reminds me of a quote uh, that is, is it's making its rounds again. Uh, it's a quote that says, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Um, this is a quote attributed to Nicholas Zinzandorf, who was a 16th century bishop. And so in light of this quote, likewise, the scripture seems to go through many of these leaders like women change their shoes. But the point is <laughs> to show that Israel's hope is ultimately found in Yahweh and not the people that he uses, right? 
God changes people all the time. He raises some up, they die, and that's it. Yet the ultimate hope is not found in the tools and the vessels that God uses throughout the history um, that we see in the scriptures, or even our history now. God may use you for a moment, you pass away, he goes on to the next person. And again, this, this is one, if not the main key theme of the book. Now with that said, I think it's important that we look at exactly what's going on in the context of the book starting with verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read it real quick. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, likewise, will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Verse 4 says, Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their land, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So what we're reading here is something that we, in America, and anywhere else for that matter, uh, can be very distasteful, can be, can be very disturbing, right? What we see in this passage is basically a group of people, namely the Israelites, entering into the land of a native people and wiping them out. That's, that's, that makes us uncomfortable when we read it. We don't know what to do with such a passage. God is calling a group of people to go into another land and, with native people and just kill all of them and take over. This is a nation, Israel, commissioned to enter into the land to destroy their people and eliminate their culture. And this was commanded to them by God himself. Now, at times, this can be very difficult to read and understand because we think to ourselves, how can a good God command something so horrific? Often, we're reminded of the tragic moments of our world history when the rise of extreme nationalist movements during the 20th century have led to, like, unbelievable levels of ethnically motivated brutality. I think of the Turkish massacre of uh, Armenians during the World War I. I think of the Nazi Holocaust killing about six million European Jews. And the forced displacement and mass killing carried out by former Yugoslavia and the African country of Rwanda during the 1900s. Well, 1990s, really. And these were like a form of ethnic cleansing. And as Christians, it's hard to deal with these passages in Scripture. So we're left, we're, we're left with trying to deal with a moral problem of a, of a conquest commissioned to Israel from God. We struggle with this moral problem of Israel entering into the land and eliminating innocent, innocent Canaanites. But we can't forget one vital fact. That the Canaanites were in fact not innocent people at all. When God was commanding Israel to take over this land, he was not giving them Canaan because they were a godly people, but rather because they were a grossly wicked nation. And I want us to look at a passage in Scripture that shows us God's purpose in Israel's command for conquest. If you can see from there. Let's read uh, Deuteronomy 9, 4-6. Can someone take that? 
Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Yeah, so uh, look what I wrote, look what I underlined here. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And then in verse 5, but because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. So, when you read the whole passage, we see that there are many purposes, right, that are working simultaneously in God's overall plan, right? Commissioning Israel to go there and wipe them out. There's a lot of things that God is working together in his sovereign plan. Number one, God is doing this because the people of the land are wicked. We see that, I underlined it there. Number two, in order that he may confirm what he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means that he's also working, working out his promises. And this is how God works. This is how God works. Each act of God is filled with many things that are working together to fulfill his decrees. But one of the key points that we see in this passage is that it is because of the wickedness of the people of the land that the Lord is driving them out. That's the main point there. And you might be wondering... Just how wicked were these people? So I want to show you the level of the depravity of the Canaanites. Let's look at Leviticus 18, 6 through 30. I put it up here on the screen if you can read it. Can someone read it? Sorry, brother. You need water? I'll...
shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the male or the stranger who sojourns among you, or the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you made it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among the people. So keep my charge, never practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Thanks, Tess. So here we see in, in verse 24, top here, that all the commands that God listed above, everything that Desmond read, are acts that the inhabitants of the land were breaking. They were committing incest, all kinds of sexual perversions, bestiality, adultery, and all forms of sin that God repeatedly called an abomination. And so just as God punished Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness, God has called Israel to be the judgment upon this promised land. I also want us to look at Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14. Can someone take that? When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There should not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a or a charmer or a medium or a well, necromancer. necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does those things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations for which you, about to, you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Right, thank you. So <clears throat> you see starting with verse 12, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Okay, so this is what um, the Lord is doing with Israel as they get into this land. Verse 13, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess, right? That's the, the nations that they're going in and taking over. What do they do? They listen to fortune tellers and I think the, the way you say that is diviners. But as for you, the Lord, your God has not allowed you to do these things. And again, we see that the Canaanites were not all innocent Right? Not at all innocent. Uh, and God is to be regarded as holy before all people everywhere. No nation on this earth should ever live without fearing God and considering his ways. Because God is a God that can make nations rise. But if we aren't careful, he can surely make nations fall. Even under the hands of our own enemies. And this is what we see with Israel. And so, this is why God commanded Israel to enter into this land and bring the judgment of God on these wicked inhabitants and to receive this land for themselves. There are so many gospel implications that are seen in this event. First, we must acknowledge that many of the physical demands from God have accomplished its purposes on a physical level. You see that in many ways with the commandments given to Israel. Right? God calling a physical, national people 
was a visible display of what God was uh, purposing to fulfill as a spiritual reality, right? Gathering a spiritual people for himself. God's ceremonial commands to make one clean before the Lord were merely a physical pointer to the spiritual reality of being made clean in Christ from his atoning work on the cross on our behalf. And likewise, this horrific act of slaughtering a nation and as a form of ethnic cleansing is merely a pointer to the ultimate true form of redemptive cleansing of a people that was done by Christ himself as he became the one driven out of his land and the one that was brutally murdered for his own people. And so you see the, the, the uh, Christ-centered uh, sort of pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of what this is going on. So a lot of these harsh realities that we see um, are really just a point of what God is doing spiritually um, in the present time and also in the future, in our, in our present time. And so keep all those things in mind, um, that God purposes things on a physical level, um, but often uh, points to Christ fulfilling it on a spiritual uh, level. Now let's look at point number two in the uh, handout. Point number two says Israel's disobedience. So as the passages go on, you will see that Israel, led by Judah, begin to take over the land, defeating the Canaanites and the Perizzites at Bezek. And as they pursued after the leader of Bezek, they did something to him that was quite strange. I don't know if you noticed as we were reading the whole, uh, the whole thing. But let's read it again in, in Judges 1. Go to verse 6 through 7. I don't have it up here, but it says, Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. And I, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Kind of, kind of strange. Now, even though it seems like justice was being served by Israel doing to Adonai Bezek what he's done to other kings. This was not at all commanded by God. Nonetheless, we see God allowing these things to happen for his purposes. Maybe this was God's way of bringing justice to Adonai Bezek providentially. But the truth is that this was not commanded by God for Israel to do. To start getting into uh, unique forms of, of, of killing people or hurting people. So such practices like cutting off their enemy's toe and thumbs were not the norm for Israel and might have been the first sign of their own corruption while they were in this land doing God's duty. Well, yes. Let, let me just say something. Sure, go for it. That, though, because that has, um, there's been a lot of that in history. I mean, it's in, in um, England and the um, first and second millennium. But I mean, it's like, Without a thumb, he can't go to war anymore. That's right. Without that big toe, he can't. So, you know, you could say, well, you know, how, you know, what are you going to do? Make him promise that he won't go to war against us? Right. Or are we going to kill him? I would say, well, you could almost point to this as a thing of mercy. You right. Know, maybe, I don't know if, I don't know here exactly, but, sure. you know, God had commanded the Israelites to kill people in certain cases, and they didn't. Right. So, you know, I wouldn't, 
I would, I'd be careful about reading too much in there. Absolutely. Now, here's, here's what I would add to what you're saying. Uh, God did not command Israel to, to act in any way merciful with these people. We're going to get into, it, uh, we're going to get into why this was so, um, which is actually the final point on your uh, worksheet. So even though it may seem as an act of mercy and it disables the leader of this uh, tribe, you know, we would think, well, this is, this is, this is a way not, not, not to necessarily kill them, but to disable them from leading and continuing their battle in this land. But you'll see, and we'll get into it, uh, a very good comment, by the way, but you'll see how because they were disobedient in, in completely, completely eliminating these people, there's consequences for allowing this person to live. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but I guess we'll get into it and you'll see it. Um, so here it is. The truth is that this was not at all commanded by God for Israel to do. These practices were not uh, what God has commanded them to do. And this could have been possibly pagan practices that should have not been adapted by God. I'm not sure this is just uh, assumption or stipulation. But here's another event that was not commanded by God. And it's what we see in uh, Judges 1.28. Let's look at Judges 1.28. Can someone read that? Yes. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, okay, but did not drive them out completely. So here we see Israel making slaves of the Canaanites instead of driving them out completely. Now maybe for Israel, this seemed to be the most beneficial thing for them, right? They might have thought, why should we drive them all out and be left having to reconstruct this land on our own? Right? So it would seem more practical to, instead of driving these people out or completely eliminating them, to at least keep them as slaves so that they can work in reconstructing and building this land that God has given them. However, this, again, and I repeat, was not commanded by God. Okay? Uh, this was pure pragmatism by Israel. This was taking their own views over what would make them most successful rather than trusting in the wisdom of God's commandments. It was, their, it was their own ideas of success, right? Over the fidelity and being faithful to God. And I think this can really speak to us in our age, right? Many Christians get caught up in pragmatism in many ways. We assume that our own opinions of what we think will work is the best way to do it. But we see that God has given his commands to Israel, yet they were not careful to obey. And that's that was the emphasis of God when he spoke to his people. Be careful to obey exactly what I've commanded. Right? The minor details. God said to eliminate these people and eliminate their culture and their idols. Do not leave nothing behind. Look at verse 21 in Judges 1. It says, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Je Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin, which was a tribe of Israel, in Jerusalem to this day. And so we here, again, we see disobedience of Israel by not driving them completely out. Let's look at another verse. Judges 1, 22 to 26. Someone take that. 
spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way to the city, and we will go kindly with you. He showed them the way to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built the city and called his name Ruth. This is his name to this day. Oh. Oh. Yeah, that's it. So here's another form of disobedience committed by Israel. Earlier in the book of Exodus, the Lord had commanded them to make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Yet we see in the verse, in this verse that we just read, that Israel disobeys that very rule and makes a deal with a man and lets him and his family go. And this man, look what happens when he let him go. This man later on builds his own city and continues to inhabit the land with his family till that day and, of course, future generations. So because he, because he made a deal with the unbeliever or the people of the land, and he thought he would benefit from it because this man would lead him to the, to the town, he let him go, the deal was done, this person ended up staying with his family in this place instead of Instead of Israel eliminating them completely, and there's consequences that uh, happen by leaving these people and disobeying God uh, in this way. And again, this kind of obedience continues to happen. We see in verse 27 that the inhabitants of Beth Sheen, the inhabitants of Dor, Iblium, I can't pronounce this one, but Megiddo, they were not driven out. And in verses 29, we see that the Israel tribe of Ephraim, uh, Ephraim did not drive out those who lived in Gezer. And all the way through the ends of chapter 1, we see that the Israelites did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, Nahalal, Asher, Beth Shemesh, Beth, Bethanath, and more other tribes in that land. They, they didn't do what God uh, commanded them to do. And this was all disobedience with major consequences. If God said, eliminate these people, take them out, they let some people stay, uh, problems, problems happen when disobedience happens. And this brings me to my last point, the, the point number three, which you'll see on your worksheet. It says future apostasy. <clears throat> Let's look at this final verse in, uh, in chapter 2. Uh, this final passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Can someone read that? Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bosham, and he said, I brought you up from the land uh, from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Goshen, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Thank you. So here we see that it is the angel of the Lord who begins to speak to Israel at this point. By the way, many commentaries say that the angel of the Lord is, to, is believed to be a, like a pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus coming and speaking to them. Especially because when he speaks, 
in the beginning of that passage, you'll notice that he refers to himself as the one who brought them out of Egypt into the land sworn to them. But moving on, we see that the angel of the Lord rebukes them for being disobedient. And in verse 3, he curses them saying, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. This is deeply profound because today we often think of a curse or a cursed life as a life filled with inflicted pain or a life of poverty or a life of physical danger or a life of disease and health issues. And although that can be very much a cursed life or a a life of misery, many of us would never think that a life of autonomy would be a cursed life, a life that God says, here, have it your way. Right? We don't see that as a curse. We say, oh, thank you. I've always wanted to do what I wanted to do. And this is what the angel of the Lord does. In this passage, we see as if the angel of the Lord is saying to Israel, okay, you want to be pragmatic and do things your way, so then I'll give you what you want. Since you didn't drive out the inhabitants, then I won't drive them out either. And you will see that they shall become thorns on your sides, And their God shall be a snare or a trap to you all. So God is basically giving them over to their own ways. And this is a curse, right? But little do the Israelites see that by their disobedience, the people that they left in the land will grow and intermingle with the Israelites and be influential in their pagan ways and eventually cause the fall of Israel's conquest. And so that's the point that I was making before. Uh... Because they did not fully eliminate these people from the land as God has commanded them, those who were survivors that were left over in this land will contribute to the fall of Israel. They they left these idolaters in the land so that eventually, maybe second generation or third generation of Israel, as they have their kids, because those people were left in the land, they'll eventually influence the Israelites uh, share in their pagan worship and eventually corrupt the conquest of Israel. And you'll see that as we, as we go forward in the uh, study. So again, little do they know that by their disobedience, the people left in the land will intermingle with the Israelites and, and be influential in their pagan ways and cause the fall of Israel's conquest. And because of a little leaven, it will eventually leaven the whole lump. Israel was called to be pure and set apart, to be the source of true worship of Yahweh, the true God, for the blessing of the whole world. Israel was to be the influencers and not the other way around. Yet because of their disobedience, we see the beginning of a future apostasy, a future breaking away from God. And as we read on throughout the series, uh, you'll see that the result of their disobedience is a future generation of of Israelites worshiping false gods in the land, forgetting who the true God is. Conclusion. Finally, we see that the Israelites hearing what the angel of the Lord spoke, and it says in verse 4, that they lifted up their voices and began to weep. And they called the place Bakim, which meant weepers. And at that point, they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And I would imagine the sorrow that they felt. They allowed sin to distract them from being obedient to God and fulfill the commandments that God has given them. And like every sin that we see even today, 
do against the Lord, there follows many consequences. And we, we struggle with that even today. When you sin, there's consequences. For Israel, at this point in the story, they'll be facing the consequences of the remaining pagans in their land and all the corruption that will come from that. But one thing that Israel was able to hope in, and this is the, I guess, the, the light in the end of the tunnel, one of the things that they were still able to open is that God never breaks his covenant, right? God never breaks his promise. What he promised, he will complete it. And so their strength, at least in, the, in these trials, is always to be placed in the future hope of what God has already promised for them. And we know that ultimately the fullness of, his, of this inheritance that was promised to them is found in Jesus, the true judge, who will bring about these promises eternally. Okay, so that, that's sort of a, a survey of, of that passage. There's so much more to say, but this concludes it for today. Next week, we'll look at chapters 2, verses, uh, actually, chapter 2, the whole way through chapter 3, all the way to verse 6 of the following chapter. So um, we'll, we'll continue on from where we, we ended today. Amen? Okay, so any questions or comments? We're good on time, so... Right, yeah. Okay. Well, the lack of faith there that God says this and he's still trying to find a way to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you see, they did good for a while and then they uh, departed after they they got into this. Right. 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 What are you saying, Parker? I think there's an interesting learning within a Bachman. As you mentioned, it's weak. They were weeping for their disobedience and their sin, and they sacrificed, but there was no repentance, right. which is a very clear look at what we are supposed to do when there's been sin. Right. They went on in their sin, which ended up in them being multiple, multiple millions of people being killed, ripped out of their land, and all these kinds of things, because they were not obedient. Right. I think that's one Absolutely. of the greatest teachings we can take. Yeah. We can even look present day and we can say, what's happening to Europe? Right. What's happening to the United States? And we're bringing in false teachings, so yeah. what's the result of this? It's time to uh, not only consider, but to act. Amen. Yeah, very good. One thing I, over the years that I have read that, I have so often thought, you know, man's logic, you know, in our everyday lives, we try to be an example as much as possible to those who are not believers. And here are the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. They just came out 400 years of slavery. And you would think, from man's logic, mm -hmm. that they would show compassion right. upon the people that they had conquered. Because God did not tell them to 
sure you're aware that um, I'm not saying it's good logic, but passages such as this are cited by people to try to establish that, well, the Quran, right. particularly as interpreted by radical Islam, is no worse than the Bible. Right. And I just wanted to review with you two of the things I've said. Yeah. And the first is, and it could only be understood by a Christian, is that Allah is interpreted or purportedly revealed by Muhammad is not the true God. Right. That's obviously one difference. But the point I make is this is a command to God's people definitely specific to this time. Mm -hmm. We now have the complete word of God. No reasonable modern Christian would think we have a command to go out in our own nation or others and slay right. infidels. Right. And, and let me add to that, and this, you, you made a good point, and this is why, uh, why we have to, when we look at verses in the Old Testament, we have to see it uh, as a, how you say, a pointer to Christ, because, and here's, here's what I say, apart from Christ, what God commanded is actually the only way for cleansing in the world. In other words, if you're still in the law, the only way to eliminate sin, uh, at least on a physical level, is to act in this way. And so you see that displayed in history. And saying, well, look, apart from the grace of, of, of God that we receive through Christ, this is actually the only logical conclusion that, that we can come to, um, if you're under the law, to completely uh, eliminate sin from a society and go back to a, a paradise, so to speak, uh, that we once had with Adam and Eve. But because we're Christians... This, and this is a reason why I understand why this horrific act existed in history. Because as Christians, if we don't have Jesus Christ, we have to go back to that sort of situation, that sort of thing. And this is the problem with Muslims. Muslims, because they believe in Sharia law, they believe that the solution for world peace is establishing their law and, and saying that if the law is held strictly, the world will be at peace. But we as Christians know that even if we were to establish a law, uh, it doesn't completely eliminate sin, and we see that through Israel's history, that sin will continue to keep creeping in, and the law actually doesn't solve the sin problem. And so this is an example that, apart from Jesus Christ, the only real way to eliminate uh, or, or create some sort of peace and eliminate evil is to actually start killing people in a land. That's a good point. Right. So passages really reveal the horrendous state of the world apart yeah. from Jesus Right, exactly. So our, our, our proclamation to the world, especially when we confront Muslims, is that if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, we'd be doing the same thing as you guys. Going into lands, killing people, and making them submit to Yahweh. But thank, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. That we, we see that example, and, it, and God showed us that through this, uh, the elimination of sin was not accomplished, and chaos and evil still reigned and it will, until Jesus Christ the true king the true judge actually defeated sin at the heart you know we have true victory and it's not through a physical national way uh, it's actually a spiritual way and so when we bring the sword so to speak into the land what we're actually doing is we're coming in peace and we bring in the sword of the word and it's actually transforming people as opposed to bringing the sword on a physical level and so this is a good contrast to see that those apart from Christ this is what this is the the natural result. This is the, the only result if it wasn't for Jesus Christ to be the, the fulfillment of that. I hope that's not too muddy. Um, but yeah. I think we can do one more question or, or comment. Des. 
Amen. Yeah, very helpful. Very true. Very good. All right, y'all. Hope it was a blessing. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. This passage has shown us that your ways are far better than our pragmatism. We're filled with pride when we attempt to outsmart you with our own ideas and standards. Your word says that even your foolishness is wiser than men and your weakness is stronger than men. And we see that clearly with this account in Judges. And so we ask that you would grant us grace as we attempt to live lives in obedience to your word. And since our obedience is never obedient enough, and our devotion to you is not devoted enough, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the only true righteous, who conquered on our behalf. And may we continuously see Christ as we continue further in this book of Judges. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys.